0: Welcome to Freedom of Species. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a radio programme dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals. This includes animal advocacy, activism, protection, conservation, and importantly, appreciation. The programme is broadcast from 3CR Studios in Melbourne, Australia, streamed live via the 3CR website. Recent podcasts are also available via the 3CR and Freedom of Species websites. All podcasts are available via iTunes. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Emma Townsend.
1: Hey y'all, this is Natalie from Blue King Brown and you're listening to 3CR. Support community radio and your local music scene. Subscribe now.
0: Today we speak with Dr Lydia Tong, a veterinarian and research affiliate with the University of Sydney, whose research is set to be a game changer in combating family violence by acknowledging what can be done in the area of the non-human animal, members of the family. We also speak with the Chief Executive Officer of RSPCA, Victoria Liz Walker, on this subject and the recent RSPCA submission to the Royal Commission into Family Violence. After that, we speak with Sean Monson, the acclaimed Earthlings director who has a new movie coming out titled Unity. We chat with Adam O'Neill, a very well-respected consultant for scientists and landowners. Adam has had time as a feral animal eradicator in his past, and he joins us to talk about Greg Hunt's War on Cats and specifically he will comment on an article authored by Ariane Wallach and Daniel Ramp that appeared in The Conversation titled Let's Give Feral Cats Their Citizenship. We also hear from Sydney Pigsave about a a very important upcoming anti-ag gag rally. It's a packed show, but please listen up, and if you can't, you can download the podcast. Animal abuse is a human welfare issue. Those are the words of Phil Arco from the Link Coalition. The Link Coalition is a national resource centre on the link between animal abuse and human violence based in the United States. Can you give us some examples of the documented research that's been done there that confirms the strong connection between violence to people and to animals?
2: Oh, there's a tremendous amount, and to be honest with you, some of the most cutting-edge research is coming out of Australia these days. One of the earliest studies uh, came out of uh, Sydney. Uh, John Clark with the uh, New South Wales Police Department did a a classic study. This was back in 2002. And he looked at 200 people who had been convicted for animal abuse, and he found that 61% of them had also committed an assault. 17% had histories of sexual abuse, 8% had histories of arson, 99% of them had committed other crimes, and they averaged four different types of crimes. And he said that a history of animal abuse was a better predictor of sexual assault than were previous convictions for homicide, arson, or firearms offenses. That's pretty compelling evidence. We have a number of, I mean, just many, many, we've got over 800 uh, citations right now. It's kind of hard to keep track of all of them. There's so many coming out all the time. But we found, uh, for example, that, oh, as many as 71% of battered women in domestic violence shelters report that their animals were killed or tortured. Upwards of half of them report that it was the fear of what might happen to their pets that kept them from leaving. And... In a study in New Zealand, uh, we found that the average length of before they left was two years. So they lived in this landscape of terror with an abusive mate for uh, two years because they're afraid of what would happen to their animals. And the uh, New Zealand study also found that it wasn't just her animals that were at risk. It was was the animals belonging to family members or friends of hers who helped her escape that could be tortured or killed uh, after, long after she had gone as, as a means of retribution. The numbers are compelling, and the anecdotal stories are sometimes even more so.
0: Since that chat with Phil Arco, the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation in the United States, have declared animal cruelty a crime against society in all 50 states. It is now a felony, a very severe crime, and so it should be. Cruelty to animals should always be addressed for the welfare of non-human and human animals alike. Our lives are knitted together in complex relationships, more complex than our intelligence can grasp. Today's topic brings to mind the Bradley Miller quote, Teaching a child not to step on a caterpillar is as valuable to the child as it is to the caterpillar. Phil mentioned that Australia is is at the forefront of a lot of research in this area, so I was keen to find out what was going on in 2015. We'll now go to our interview with Dr Lydia Tong. Are animals indeed our best friends when it comes to combating domestic violence?
3: I think so. I think animals, they will be our best friends in a few senses in this whole situation. They certainly can act as sentinels. I believe you know, that for for domestic violence uh, it may be the vet that first sees something going wrong in that family and in the other way that they're best friends in these scenarios is thats that, is that um, I've heard many victims say to me that they wouldn't have survived without those companions, those animal companions of theirs. Sometimes they're the only friend that they have left because they've become so isolated through the abuse and so they're just critical in many ways, to the survival of a lot of people in these horrible situations.
0: Lydia Tong, veterinary and research affiliate with the University of Sydney, who is also a veterinary pathologist.
3: A veterinary pathologist is someone who's trained as a veterinarian and then they specialise in the study of disease, and that might be through examination of dead animals or animal tissues.
0: Tell us about your past experience as a vet, which led up to your focus on the present research that you're doing.
3: I started out working as a, uh, a vet in practice and I did have experiences where I saw cases, saw patients who I was concerned might have experienced abuse and I realised at that point that there was very little in the way of education for veterinarians and sort of support structures to allow vets to A, diagnose some animal abuse and B, sort of report it. So that sort of, those experiences very much led me to do the research I am now.
0: Were you in a private practice during those veterinarian years or was it an, uh, you know, a community vet hospital? Or So I've
3: seen cases of abuse or suspected abuse in private practice, absolutely, and also in some time that I spent working in shelters, sort of animal welfare shelters. So you can see it anywhere.
0: At that time, the feeling was, did you just have to keep a tight lip and just you know, do your service as a vet and and fix the animal's injuries. Is that how you felt? Can you just... So the
3: challenge was for me and is, I think, continuing for a lot of vets is that you may have a degree of suspicion, but it may only be partial suspicion and we aren't really equipped to make a more definitive diagnosis or be sure that it's abuse. And it's quite intimidating to sort of take that to the next level without being sure. So I've been in that situation I know a lot of colleagues have. And one of the fundamental problems that we have is that there is very little research that's been done by the, the vet profession so far into how we can definitively diagnose abuse unlike in medicine where they've got now huge amounts you know in human medicine and human forensics they know huge amounts about how to diagnose abuse in children and adults.
0: How often were you coming across this as a practicing vet where you had suspicions?
3: Not Terribly often, you know, every once in a while, every few months maybe. It's a bit different if you're working in an animal welfare clinic where you'll get animals brought in by either by inspectors, so you're seeing it a bit more frequently. But there has been some research that suggests a rate of about 5 cases of abuse abuse per 1,000 patients in private practice. I believe that was in the United States, but it's fairly frequent. And the, the sort of the thing that's a little more worrying even than that, and this is something that's coming out of my research at the moment, is that there's a lot more abuse going on that would never make it to the vet or things that are, you know, emotional, psychological abuse and, you know, where there's not injuries that are sufficient to require vet care, there's all of that going on as well that's not going to be picked up. So we need to be very good at picking it up when it does, you know, make it eventually to the vet. So I hope we can improve on that.
0: We are speaking with Dr Lydia Tong, veterinarian and research affiliate with the University of Sydney, about her research regarding the link between domestic violence and animal abuse. Can you tell us in more detail about the actual research you're doing, Lydia? So um,
3: one part of the research that I am involved with and have published work on is looking at more definitively being able to separate what is an abuse injury from an accident and and the research that I've done was looking at dogs that had fractures so we compared abused dogs to dogs injured in accidents and found that there were actually ways there are ways that you can start to separate them depending on all sorts of different details about the fractures and that was you know it's a small part of the puzzle but it's just a step in the right direction and then the other side of the research I'm now involved in is looking at how abused animals, how they relate and fit into violent families and and how the two are often linked.
0: You're using what you term fracture identification methods. So you can actually tell quite obviously, can you, that, that no, that fracture has been a force from something that's just not in a vet's imagination. It could in any way be a natural blow. Is that right?
3: Yes, so what the research essentially came out with was something of a checklist, um, and there were five different features that were much more likely to be associated with abuse abuse injuries than accidents, and so it's never an absolutely perfect tool, but every time a vet sees another one of these five elements to the fracture, that each time it increases their, their degree of suspicion, and often... It's also looking at what kind of fracture has occurred and comparing that with what, has, what you've been told has caused the injury. So, for example, if someone says, oh, the dog got hit by a car, there are certain ways in which bones fracture which do and don't happen when they've been hit by a car. And so if the story really doesn't fit as well, that can help us.
0: You say vets are often the first to see evidence of abuse within the human family mm-hmm. when you treat Injured pets. I'm a little bit confused because in an interview last year we did on the link between domestic violence and animal abuse, or, or violence in general and animal abuse, and many said, "Oh, well, you know, people that abuse animals don't then take them to the vet." Can you just flesh that out a bit for us? Because I mean, obviously, mm. that's not always the story.
3: Yeah. So, so it's actually a common misconception that abused animals don't make it to the vet clinic. And so there was a previous study in the UK that found that when abused animals did go, and over over half of vets in the UK in private practice have seen abused animals in other countries, it goes up to 90%. And 25% of the time, it was actually the abuser themselves that brought the animal. So it does actually happen. And... The study that I have running currently shows me as well that quite often and that study that is surveying people who are victims of domestic violence who've got, had pets and a lot of them have told me that they or the perpetrator of abuse has taken the animal to a vet after being abused by you know, their their partner. So it definitely does happen. 3CR, radio that's independent, progressive and making a difference.
0: You are tuned in to Freedom of Species Animal Advocacy on the Airwaves. We are speaking with Dr Lydia Tong and I asked her what she sets out to achieve from her research that focuses on the link between domestic violence and animal abuse. So this
3: project I'm doing is going to be a great big overview of, I guess, family abuse and violence in families that own pets all across Australia. And I've taken the opportunity to ask lots and lots of questions about what kinds of abuses are occurring towards the respondents and their children and what's happening to the animals, whether it's physical or emotional, uh, different all sorts of different types of, types of abuse. and And then asking them lots of questions about how they interact with the veterinary community and, most importantly, how the abuse of their pets causes them to be at increased risk so for example they tell me often that they have delayed seeking shelter at a safe place because they can't find anywhere for their pets to go they've even returned to an abusive partner often because they're afraid for their pets and they've experienced further abuse or their children have or their animals have because there are no services to help people who have pets who are escaping violence. So I guess A, the purpose of the study is going to be to really get to grips with what the situation is in Australia. And secondly, I want that then to go on and inform the you know, inform people who make policy and provide funding to services because these people who are experiencing violence who have pets are really suffering at the moment.
0: You hope to improve the services for both human mm-hmm. and animal victims with your research. Can you give us an example of how this is to be implemented?
3: There are a few different ways that we can help improve services to pet-owning victims of domestic violence. Um, At the moment, I'm involved in a very exciting project to establish the first ever refuges for women and children that will actually house their animals with them when they escape violence. So that's going to be two shelters, but we would need many more. And there's a few other ways we can help, for example, by providing fostering services so they can escape and their animal will get cared for by someone else um, or an organisation. And that is currently happening in New South Wales with the RSPCA and in Queensland. But again, we need much more. Also just the support of DV workers and police in recognising that the animals are an important part of the picture and just raising awareness of all workers in the domestic violence
0: sphere. Can you take us through what is actually lacking and failing in that system at the moment when you say make these people aware of what's going on? Is there a lack of communication between domestic violence services, animal welfare inspectors? Are they relating to each other at all?
3: Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've hit the nail on the head there. We in Australia, we're quite behind some other places, particularly the states where there's increasing and and now quite good communication between all the different I guess support workers that can be involved and that includes the vet community that includes social services police and doctors and It would be great if we could have more communication. That has to be done quite carefully because, you know, just openly sharing information is not going to be appropriate, but it can be done in a much better way. And I'd like to see see all of us being able to speak to each other. I think that's the way we need to go.
0: So you're including in that communication veterinarians themselves having to make mandatory reports to authorities when they suspect animal abuse, is that correct?
3: Yes, I I think that that's where we need to end up. I'm not in favour of rushing it in imminently because I think it has to be very carefully considered and thoughtfully designed. One of the reasons why I am in support of mandatory reporting is because at the moment vets have no protection whatsoever for reporting abuse and most vets are really do not feel comfortable. I think less than 10% of Australian vets feel comfortable diagnosing and re- reporting abuse in animals. So what we need to do is make sure that when a vet does suspect or want to report abuse in good faith that they can do that without having to be concerned for their own safety or for their professional standing. So what we need to do is design a reporting system that's appropriate for pet owners and appropriate for veterinarians.
0: The ideal would be the vet comes across this scenario and feels entirely comfortable in reporting this issue. There's a database that is shared by all authorities, police, welfare inspectors, and on people's criminal records, mm-hmm. and that's all shared information, basically. That's how I'm... Oh, yeah, yeah, amongst yeah. authorities, yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Something that was you know very carefully controlled, but whereby exactly if veterinarian sees an animal that they're highly suspicious has been abused or someone actually gets convicted for animal abuse that name goes on a on a list that then can be accessed by social services you know often when these things do get followed up very often the families are already known to social services or so on or vice versa so yes I, i think that's That's the future. It's going to take a while.
0: At the moment, I understand there's not really that communication. So someone can start committing crimes and they may have been abusing animals as a younger person, but there's no... You wouldn't know that at that level? How I'm reading this area of research and work that's been done by the Link Coalition is that you're really trying to get these systems in place. So ideally in the future there is some kind of preventative source for your work?
3: As far as I understand, in New South Wales, at least in the Sydney area, with domestic violence incident reporting by the police, I, I believe they are looking at introducing you know, adequate uh, space to consider what's happening with pets in that situation, which is a really good step forward. But yes, I think at the moment, you know, the fact that someone has a history of animal abuse on their record is not not something that's accessible very accessible later down the line and to be honest it's quite unusual or fairly rare that animal abuse gets convicted it's very under i guess it's this criminal prosecution for animal abuse is, is quite uh the rates are low compared to the occurrence of it but you know in the future that'll be good because the fact is is that people who are abusive towards animals are you know the link as you know so strong and those people should be considered high risk for violence towards people as well.
0: How long until you've wrapped up this research you're presently engaged in?
3: I am going to be collecting data probably for another couple of months. I've Already got well over a thousand respondents, and I hope that it will be completed and ideally published in two thousand, the first half of two thousand and sixteen. So, because I think there's a, you know, there's a certainly an urgency to getting this out and sharing it and informing those who need to be informed about what the situation is.
0: Then it'll be evidence which is great rather than anecdotal. Absolutely. It's
3: going to be some cold, hard numbers and some quite difficult to swallow facts about um, the situation in these violent animal-owning homes.
0: Can you just reflect on anywhere overseas that is ahead of us in this area?
3: I think the United States really is the most advanced when it comes to this issue. They have instituted across quite a lot of states laws that help you know, help address these uh, abuse of what I would call co-abusive families with animal and human abuse. They have mandatory reporting in around ten states of animal abuse, and they also have a lot more service provision such as many more shelters that will house families and animals escaping abuse, fostering services and so on. So I think if we could sort of look up to anyone in terms of a model for how we can improve it would be the United States. New Zealand is also also doing really good thing.
0: What are they doing in New Zealand?
3: They've got increased awareness. They've been doing a lot of educational campaigns with the New Zealand SPCA and they also do have a women's shelter that will house animals. So so yes, so we can learn from our neighbours as well.
0: Did you say that in the US they have mandatory reporting of on- of animal abuse from vets is that mm-hmm. right
3: That's correct. Yes, yeah. yeah, in in 10 states and in Canada in four provinces. So, so it does happen, but it has to be done carefully.
0: Well, thank you very much for your time, Lydia, and we look forward to catching up with you again when this is all published. Absolutely. Yeah.
3: Yes, I'll love to share that with you.
0: You are listening to Freedom of Species Animal Advocacy on the Airwaves. We will now go to our interview with the Chief Executive Officer of RSPCA Victoria, Liz Walker. On what basis did the RSPCA feel it necessary to facilitate a submission to the Royal Commission into Family Violence?
1: Well Emma, the, the thing that, that is widely known but nothing is done about is that, that the threats and actual threat and abject neglect is often a consequence to, for animals in domestic violence circumstances. So our threats to animals are used so that people don't leave and then if people do leave, sometimes those animals are neglected and there's some terrible stories where you know, children have begged mothers to go back because you know, the family pet is still at home or it might be injured and it places uh, incredible pressure on the victims of domestic violence but it also has a major impact on their recovery if they can't be with their animals.
0: Can you share with us what was included in the RSPCA submission And what the RSPCA would like to see taken into account and implemented as a result of the commission.
1: There are three main uh, recommendations that we made. So one of them is around our inspectorate and authorised officers who are often called to cases where there's animal cruelty. And and we think it's very important that that these people are actually uh, trained in recognising domestic violence and indeed that there is compulsory reporting for authorised officers and our inspectorates so that we can actually make sure that any indication of domestic violence is seized upon very early in the piece. The second recommendation is related to that and and again includes that training of veterinarians this time and a framework for reporting where we believe that our veterinarians who see animals that may be victims of domestic violence need to have that mandatory requirement for reporting as well. And the third thing is around providing some really meaningful assistance for the care of animals that are involved in family violence situation and that not only means actually providing you know boarding for these animals either in private facilities or indeed in the welfare sector but it actually means planning to take these animals with the families women and families who are actually escaping domestic violence situations that is the absolute best outcome that when people flee violent situations they can take their animals with them because it keeps everyone safe keeps everyone together and maintains that solid connection which is often so important to them.
0: In the first recommendation of training and reporting mechanisms for early intervention, can you mock up an example of this early intervention, which is lacking currently?
1: Well, I think that the types of examples that, that we see is when you do see, when our inspectors might attend a property where an animal is sick or injured, and they can see signs of, intuitively, they would see signs where there's just unhappiness in the home, There's they would you know, they're very they're skilled at understanding fear and anxiety and what have you. If they see all those types of things, there has to be a framework that we can provide for them that says, you know, if you have an index of suspicion based on these types of parameters, that you actually need to then you know, notify the authorities. Very, very similarly, and I think where we'd like to draw from, is the mandatory requirement in the health sector and also in the teaching profession where people are required to uh, report as they think, children are being harmed in any way i believe that there's a very there's an analogous model that we will be able to lift up and move across to i'm not suggesting it will be easy but i think if we're really serious about this all the data says that you know cruelty to animals and cruelty to people is highly linked so instead of just talking about it i think it's high time that we actually took this terrific opportunity with the royal commission and made a difference <laughs>
0: You are tuned into to Freedom of Species. We are chatting with Liz Walker, the Chief Executive Officer of RSPCA Victoria, about the RSPCA's recent submission into the Royal Commission into Family Violence. As I understand it, as it presently stands, RSPCA inspectors are called out often to a report of animal cruelty and they it, already it, it may be too late or an incident which has been very harmful to the animal mm. but obviously it is reflecting what else is going on in the in the family unit and so therefore as it stands now uh, the RSPCA don't stand on legs that can re- report anything or more importantly, have an interagency reporting system, is that right? So is it like yeah. an, you, the police, the court systems?
1: Mm, that's right. I mean, at the, at the moment, there's no mandatory reporting and there's no specific framework for training our team on how to, how to recognise this. So if we see, if our inspectors see a case of animal cruelty, they'll obviously take swift action to make sure that animal is safe and to hold people accountable for the animal's care or bring them to justice if they've really if, if they've actually committed an offence. One of the challenges in that environment is actually getting witnesses and charging people because if people are scared in that family trying to find people who'll bear witness is very challenging. But what in terms of family violence, what we need is a really clear process and framework for actually making sure that if there's an index of suspicion that the cruelty to this animal is symptomatic of a, of a wider issue of violence in that household, that there's a clear pathway for notifying the appropriate human health services so that they can intervene really quickly.
0: That earlier intervention hmm. will be cutting this off at the core, the perpetuation of a violence which, which could escalate further.
1: Absolutely, and I think that that's exactly what we'd all like to see happen.
0: And where does it stand now, the submission? How does this process go once you put forward the submission?
1: My understanding is that the Royal Commission has to go through its entire findings and it's still well and truly in the thick of working through that. And so we'll come out with recommendations. And then we would be very keen to assist in developing... and participating in developing those standards and what have you and also helping with the question around animal sheltering. In the meantime, just in the last couple of weeks in advance of any findings of the Royal Commission, the Andrews government provided funding of around about $100,000 over four years to Safe Steps, which is an organisation that assists people fleeing family violence and that money is actually designed to actually to help Safe Steps work with animal welfare agencies, such as RSPCA, to, to work on a framework for supporting keeping animals with families and making sure that victims of domestic violence get out of that situation as quickly as possible, making sure that animals are safe. So we'll be working with Safe Steps to actually build a framework around the care for animals. And I'm hopeful that we can start a discussion with them also regarding a framework for mandatory reporting and see if we can develop some better insights into that as well.
0: Thank you so much for your time, Liz. We, um... Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, we really look forward to hearing the outcome of this extremely important uh, work that you're up to. Uh,
1: That's my pleasure. It's uh, it's a really critical um, piece, having the the link between animals and people, and uh, keeping people together with their animals for their recovery from these terrible situations is, is tremendously important, as of course is always, keeping the animals safe in the first place.
0: If this topic is causing uncomfortable emotions or thoughts, there is help out there for you. There is one eight hundred respect, that's one eight hundred respect or you can contact Lifeline on one hundred three triple one four or there is also an organization called Men's Line Australia. Uh, Men's Line Australia is a professional telephone and online support and information service for Australian men and that is one three hundred seven eight double nine seven eight.
1: 3CR Community Radio is dedicated to exploring the issues that affect our future.
4: Because I think it is something we just need to be talking about.
5: 855 AM. Tune
0: in and listen up. We will now go to our interview with the acclaimed director of Earthlings, Sean Monson and unearth a bit about his new film titled Unity. In looking at some of your past interviews, Sean, for Earthlings, it is clear you had ingredients for this movie titled Unity marinating in your mind. To what extent was this intellectual engineering in wanting to reach a larger audience with your Earthlings message?
6: Well, The Earthlings is a, a film about uh, how we regard other beings and how we have sort of compassion for some, but then disdain for others. And uh, But it's particularly about the animal kingdom. And Unity was taking that further. Uh, instead of focusing on a particular issue, which documentaries do very well, such as, I don't know, stopping a dam from being built in the rainforest or something, or any number of worthy subjects, I thought, well, why don't we get to the root of all this dominion and conflict and collision, which is separation, you know, perceived opposites. Let's go beneath all that and try try to tackle the subject at its most basic level.
0: To me, the movie brings up many questions about violence and ego, and I felt like a chicken having a dust bath And after I was in a dust storm of questions about these. Um, now, violence and ego underpin the duality that you started to talk about then and you refer to in the film, which you urge needs a total rehaul for humankind. My question is, as pain and pleasure are biologically you know, hardwired, intimately in our brain as receptors. And we need both to survive, right? And, and likewise, any other or, or contrasting in life is an essential ingredient in development of identity. Is duality actually human nature, though, at its core?
6: Yes, it is, I think, um, on a certain level and perhaps a myriad of levels. But we've also seen an evolution through these levels from the much more savage approach um, of the treatment of humankind, such as, let's say, public hangings, uh, which still occur in some parts of the world, or public executions, or um, putting people on babies on spikes as you walk into the city of Rome thousands of years ago. Well, we don't do this anymore. We've evolved beyond beyond that, and, uh, and women have the right to vote, and gay marriage is getting okay, and, and we are slowly moving up through these levels of, uh, of past identity and tradition with what we think is us and who we are. So something is propelling us forward, and a great example might be looking back in history at World War II, for instance, where you would see someone like Hitler and someone like Gandhi who were contemporaries who existed at the same time. Here, again, is the spectrum, the, the capacity, the, the human capacity for either uh, uh, dominion or compassion. It exists. It's there. It's right there. And so the film is asking us to evolve higher toward more compassion as opposed to dominion and separation. But the capacity exists. It's sort of waiting to be tapped, you know?
0: What is unity to you?
6: Unity would be, as we're evolving, being patient with one another's delusions, probably. Being patient with one another and our delusions. So if there's one sin in the world, if I use the, it's almost a religious word, it seems, to use the word sin. I'm not a religious person. But if there is one sin in the world, it seems that that only sin is ignorance. It seems that every crime committed under the sun to any being on the planet was done out of ignorance, and that ignorance was a lack of compassion for another being which later in life can be developed and cultivated and grow and flourish. So it's as if we're ignorant, and we're evolving out of our ignorance, slowly but surely. That's just a theory, but that's, that's, what, that's something I think about.
0: You are tuned into Freedom of Species, and we are chatting with Earthlings director Sean Monson about his new film called Unity. I asked Sean what message he would like the audience to walk away with after seeing the film.
6: I mean, I hope even if nothing else, if we've shined a light on these contrasts in a new way, you know, this contrast that man has—is light and dark, or this constant need to uh, this dualistic need which we're. Which may not even be a need. Uh, we're we we're, we're fed it constantly, you know. Uh, whether it's in our politics, or you know, in this country, for instance, are you a Democrat or Republican? Uh, do you like this sports team or that sports team? You know, I listen to you listen to music, and she left me. He left me. Why can't we be back together? You know, or, or any film, any film you can name, even the kids' film, the Disney films. That there's the evil queen and there's the kind prince, or the evil king and the kind princess. I mean, the duality storyline is the only one we know, and it is perpetuated over and over and over again. And I, I know there's more to us than this. And I think the Buddha said it once, and I'm not a Buddhist, but I think he said, it's the furthest journey but the shortest distance. And when you start to see it, when you just see it, you see it everywhere. It's just like when you get a new car. And suddenly you see that car all over the road. You never noticed it before. That car was there all along but you never saw it until you bought one of those cards I and mean, then you couldn't help but to see it. And I think going beyond duality is like that. A unity is that way. You begin to see past all these dualities and it becomes easier. You just rise above it. That's the great hope.
0: Oh, you see it like is this, is this constant wrestling. And I think to survive, there has to be one energy that is more victorious or stronger than the other one. Because as I see it, when a bad deed is done or... A, an awful execution of violence, that seems to do more harm than good. It takes a lot of good to even out that balance, but in a world to survive and this evolution that you refer to in the film, I find that obviously the good is is outgrowing, is beating, you know, almost the, the other side of it. So it is that constant being aware of that constant wrestling and, and knowing that we're surging forward to a better right. way that you know, indeed the film opens the door and lights up the possibility of that. Yeah. Yeah.
6: Yeah, perhaps it takes us to the next level, uh, the next level of consciousness, you know, a higher state of consciousness, and then we'll have maybe a new uh, new obstacle to overcome, to come there. But you're right. It, it, you know, force usually brings about counterforce, and so I often think, I often wonder about this, having finished the film, I think, gosh, is there light and dark? Is there really such a thing as darkness or is darkness really just a lack of light? It's like is there such a thing as cold, or is cold just a lack of heat? You know, I mean, if you, look, if you think about it, maybe there's nothing but light and the lack of light. And that's it. There's no such thing as darkness. You can't open a closet and flood it with darkness. You know, um, if there's light. We can see the sun go down. It's, it, it's midday. It's bright. The sun goes down. It's sort of dusk, a little less light, a little more into the evening, less light. And then by midnight, it's pitch black. That's because the light has been removed. And so I think conscious evolution can be like that light. It can be encrusted, buried, removed, but I think there's really no such thing as darkness. There's just that lack of light. Sorry to wax so philosophical there.
0: Thank you for giving us a plateau to talk about these things. I think it's very refreshing and, and very necessary for this time. Is ego a dirty word, Sean?
6: No, 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 no. Ego's like a... It's like a,
0: you know, I should it like a pet. <laughs> you know, <laughs> It's a good uh, knife like for
1: a, a
6: pet. pet. <laughs> yeah, right. Sometimes it's you, the rug, or, you know, um, and I, of course, love animals, so I, I'm hesitant to use that analogy, but I say it with love, you know. It don't look at it like a villain or an enemy. Um, it is something to pass through and overcome, and then you almost you know, we may all, we may even chuckle about it, you know, later looking back and going, you know, how silly it is. Yeah. You know, to see some of the things we did and the wars we fought and the collisions we we stuck to in the name of identity and ego um, and how impermanent and silly it seems.
0: I thought someone had copy and pasted the Emmys or Oscars invite list when I read the narrator names, the people that narrated in your film. I find it kind of, I have to say, ironic that you chose, I think, 101 of the most well-known movie stars, to narrate the message in a film to check your ego, maybe leave it at the door. It's known that Hollywood's very egocentric. Right. You know, it's an industry where arguably the healthiest, shiniest, more robust egos remain victorious.
6: It's a, good, it's a healthy contradiction, maybe, you know, to have such a cast to talk about such a message. But, you know, why not? I mean, uh, sometimes actors will play... Uh, roles in film that are awful roles and, and sometimes be celebrated for it. You may be a rapist and a serial killer in a role and in a really well made film and it's sort of celebrated. And, um, you know, I think that public's being fed by so much of that that it wouldn't hurt to have the same industry also, uh, feed the public something else as well. So it's like, it's like if you eat, you know, it's like getting in your fruits and vegetables as well, you know. So this is sort of a fruits and vegetables movie uh, for the rest of the stuff that the world's being fed by. And yeah. I think there's a place for all of it. But it'd be nice to have a bit more of this as opposed to um, uh, what we see in entertainment, which is often pain, you know, a great amount of pain, you know. And, and the news is the same way. We sit in the dark and we watch pain, you know. So we thought we'd give them something else or a different look at how we hurt one another. And that contrast, maybe it would take us to the next step forward.
0: One more question on ego. How do you personally keep your ego in check, Sean? I I think,
6: you know, the universe seems to do a good job with that, (laughs) just uh, with life, you know, um, just stuff coming up. And um, it's almost like its own sort of ego practice, or spiritual practice, if you will, or conscious practice. Um, it doesn't mean you turn the other cheek uh, inevitably, uh, forever and you let people walk all over you. That would be maybe spiritual naivete or uh, an ego naivete. But, um, but you, s- you sort of stop taking a position over everything if you can. Even with the film, you try not to take like a stand and say, this is who I am, I'm this, and you're that. It's just sort of arbitrary to take all those positions. You know, if you pick up a stick, and I and I just pick an arbitrary point in the stick, and I say, this is my side of the stick, and this is your side, and my side happens to be longer, I just picked an arbitrary point. You could just either say, well, what if the center point is here, and my side is longer? So you begin to see how silly all these positionalities are, all these arbitrary positionalities, which are usually taught, as we're, as we're brought up on this side or that side of a hill or a river. Um, and so you just kind of let go of those positionalities a little bit, and I think that helps surrender the ego somewhat or step by step
0: Finally, Sean, um, has the process of unity shot off any other ideas which have hijacked your creative mind for future projects or even just thoughts that you can share with us today about the the big picture of of the social global world and where you're heading next?
6: Yeah, I have uh, two other projects that are in development and one we're really close to finalizing a deal on yeah, the film did sort of change projects I may have made may have made otherwise. May I just lost interest in them and was more interested in something that may not be necessarily as entertaining as some films, which are wonderful. And I love to see those entertaining films. But might give viewers a little something more to take with them.
0: Can you tease us a bit with a little bit more detail?
6: I just I, I'll say this only, I'll say a title only. I have something called The Great Silence that I've been working on for about 15 years. And, um, and I, don't know yet, uh, I don't know yet if it'll be animated or if it'll be live action because of what's required in it. So I'll just have to leave it at that for now.
0: Well, it's been voiced now, the great silence. Very exciting. Well, thank yeah. you so much, Sean.
6: Thank you. Appreciate your question. Like we born, born
3: Freedom of Species is a show about animals, Four animals listened to by humans. Tune in Sundays, 1 p.m.
6: Born to be wild. Born to be wild.
0: There was much comment around, and I must say, it seemed very disparated and uninformed comment, confused comment on the reaction to Greg Hunt's announcement of his war on feral cats. I thought the most informed comment came in an article that was published in The Conversation by Dr. Arian Wallach, who's a university fellow at Charles Darwin University, and Daniel Ramp, who's a senior lecturer at the University of Technology, Sydney. Ariane and Daniel are in Canada this week at the first global conference in compassionate conservation. So isn't that indeed a sign that the world is becoming a more compassionate place? I couldn't manage to speak with Daniel or Arian, but I managed to get Adam O'Neill, Arian's colleague, on the phone. Adam is a land manager, author and independent researcher who specialises in animal behaviour and Australian ecology. He has been providing consultation to scientists, conservation groups and landowners on dingoes and ecosystem restoration for over 20 years. Adam has also had time as a professional feral animal eradicator where he came to the realisation that pest control is both unnecessary and counterproductive. Adam, thank you so much for commenting on this war against feral cats issue. Firstly, I guess feral cats need a new PR spin, don't they?
4: (laughs) Well, they've certainly got that with Ariane. Yeah, she's certainly stirred things up.
0: It comes back to how we are dealing with our dingo apex predator. Is that right?
4: Well, I think this is the biggest problem, and this is where it's all started. You know, from the beginning, we uh, we had a fox problem, so we've addressed that, and we've wiped out the foxes, and this has led to a situation now where, well, in doing that, we, uh, we also unknowingly took out the apex predator, the dingo. So we've taken out two large predators in the system, which has allowed the eruption of cats so now this is the new problem that we've got to deal with and of course in the process we've lost a lot of endangered species Um, the very species we're trying to save initially have now gone I mean there's just a few remnant populations left that we're desperately trying to save so this is where this war on cats comes from but it's all self-inflicted if you like and I really don't think that um, declaring war on cats is the answer to the problem. It's it's not really the solution. I think what needs to be done is we've got to go back, back to the drawing board, back to the beginning, and look at these systems prior to the intervention and analyse what was keeping these endangered species alive for so long. And I think that if we did that, we would have found that there were dingoes in all of these systems maintaining a balance, keeping a lid on the cats and foxes and uh, and allowing these endangered species to survive, so yeah we've uh, I, I think it's time to go back and uh, I, and I agree with Ariane it's time to embrace our introduced species, stop attacking them, and let the dingoes do the job for us
0: so this is indeed the way forward is we just need to leave the dingoes alone, and that will deal with our cat populations.
4: well the problem is is that <laughs> in most areas we're largely governed by the requirements of the pastoral industry they seem to have this idea that dingoes are a major problem and they are when they're persecuted so it's like we've got to pander to the needs of a few different parties with vested interests so uh So I think this is the main driver of the problem. We have to, we're we're controlling dingoes to appease the concerns of the pastoral industry. But in doing so, we create superabundant populations of foxes and cats. So then we've got to deal with that. So what we really need to do, I think, is go back to the drawing board and look at the initial problem of pastoralists dealing with dingoes. And to do that, I think Guardian Dogs is the answer and uh, in my opinion if you leave dingoes alone they'd become much less of a problem once you restore their social integrity and their territoriality they actually the numbers actually go down and they concentrate on traditional prey and generally leave livestock alone so rather than push this measure of continued persecution of predators i think it's time to go right back to the beginning and take a whole new look at it and start with the problems with with pastoralists If we can sort that out, everything else will uh, fall into place. I guess my main argument is, is that all of these endangered species have coexisted with cats and foxes for well over 100, 150 years without human intervention. I mean, there was remnant populations distributed throughout the continent that were surviving quite happily in the presence of cats and foxes. And as conservationists moved in, to try and promote these remnant populations, they inadvertently and unknow- unknowingly affected dingo populations that were there protecting these endangered species. And so we've sort of created this problem for ourselves now. And it's, uh, as I said, it's gone from dingoes to foxes and now to cats. And if we continue with this war on cats, we're only going to create another problem in a smaller predator. Which will probably be the rat. So uh, our continual intervention—it's it, it, just not working. I think we've got to go back to basics and let nature steer itself in the right direction.
0: Cats made a scratching post of the media this week with the awfully sad news of the trophy hunt kill of the thirteen-year-old lion Cecil. The latest news on that is Zimbabwe has called on the United States to extradite the trophy hunter Walter Palmer to face justice. Rest in peace, Cecil. Your life passing has shone a further light on the awful supply chain that happens with the trophy hunting industry which is factory farm-like captive breeding organisations that run on the PR spin that they are actually working for lion conservation in South Africa. We interviewed Kevin Richardson, an international campaigner against canned hunting, and that interview is still on the website. It's very informative. It is a little bit of a complex issue, but that is one that is really harnessing international hearts against this industry that exploits really the, the leader of the animal kingdom in such a horrific way.
6: Hey,
3: this is Jane from The Herb. Please support community radio and your
5: local music
4: scene. Hi,
5: my name's Belinda Jones and I'm one of the co-founders of Sydney Pig Save. Now, Sydney Pick Save is a registered charity which began about one year ago and we're part of the global save movement which is founded on Gandhi's principles of kindness, compassion and non-harm for all beings. Our four main purposes are to inform, educate, advocate and fundraise. We do this in a number of ways. We hold regular rallies, we seek to engage with the media We build our audience through social media. We've held some market stalls in the past. We've run raffles and coming up we'll be hosting a rally dedicated to a proposed bill known as Ag Gag. Now the rally will be on Saturday the 8th of August at 11am at the Town Hall steps in Sydney. For those of you that don't know, the term Ag Gag describes a variety of laws which seek to hinder or gag animal protection advocates by limiting or preventing them from recording the operations of commercial agricultural facilities, or from making those recordings public. Now, in recent years, Australian animal advocates have become increasingly effective in gathering and releasing this undercover footage. Much of this footage exposes extreme examples of animal cruelty, neglect, violations of animal protection laws, and legalised cruelty. What most people don't actually realise is that the so-called farming practices that are actually legal in this country include really cruel practices such as teeth removal, castration, ear clipping and more, all without anaesthetic. And there's also, of course, the issue of farrowing crates and sow stalls, which are, are confined areas so small that the pigs cannot even turn around or nestle with their young. A number of pig farms in Australia have been exposed and the level of cruelty is really abhorrent. So Sydney Pick Save have fortunately been able to share some of this footage with thanks to those gathering the evidence. This has been an incredible tool for us in educating the public about the plight of pigs in our food chain and highlighting the data to the cruelty that goes on. Our animal advocates have also begun collecting footage using unmanned aerial vehicles known as the drones. Uh, in an attempt to verify the welfare claims of so-called free-range farms. As a result, politicians, unfortunately, from both major political parties, are calling for the introduction of ag-gag legislation. In 2014, ag-gag laws were successfully defeated in South Australia Parliament, but this year, Western Australian Liberal Senator Chris Back introduced ag-gag laws at the federal level. So if this law gets passed, it could mean harsher penalties for those who expose cruelty rather than those who actually perpetrate it. And there's a real real threat of imprisonment. The law would force investigators to surrender the first piece of evidence obtained. And this could effectively tip off industry and shut down the investigation completely. So in summing up, ag-gag laws operate to hide the truth about how animals are raised on factory farms by silencing advocates and stifling transparency. These laws effectively suppress the public's right to question our present use and abuse of farm animals while permitting the concealment of animal cruelty and neglect. So Sydney Pigsave are really hoping to see as many members of the public there with us rallying on the 8th of August to add their voice to say no to our gag. Now, for more information, please feel welcome to visit our website, which is www.sydneypigsave.org.
0: Before we wrap up the show, there is a great reason to celebrate with the news that the Gadamai Temple Trust in Nepal made a formal decision to end animal sacrifice that has happened with the Gadami Festival uh, for the last 300 years. Uh, the Gadami Festival happens every five years, and I quote, The Gadamai Temple Trust hereby declares our formal decision to end animal sacrifice. With your help, we can ensure Gadamai 2019 is free from bloodshed. Moreover, we can ensure Gadami 2019 is a momentous celebration of life. For every life taken, our heart is heavy. The time has come to transform an old tradition. Wow, that's definitely a big one to celebrate. Next week, Kate Gracie will be back in the FOS Producers Chair. We'll be hearing from activists campaigning against the horrific annual seal slaughter in Namibia and its ugly Australian connection. We'll also hear about the proposed seal cull in South Australia. So be sure to tune in for that one. I'd like to thank very much Lydia Tong, Liz Walker, Adam O'Neill, Sean Monson, and I I peppered a little bit of music from the musician's magnet. Have a great week. Taking us out is a tune by Passenger called Hearts on Fire. R.I.P. Cecil.
6: Yeah, I don't know how and I don't know
5: why But when something's living, we
1: well, can't say die
5: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced
3: in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.